0: We're going to be going through 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is week 6 in our Holiness and Hope series, taking the book of 1 Peter through almost to the end of the year. And as we've been traveling through 1 Peter, you've probably noticed that Peter likes to repeat certain words and phrases and themes. There's these reoccurring things that keep sort of bubbling up in the text to us. And it makes sense. It makes sense uh, since he's writing a letter to a, a hurting people who need hope. And it's like if you've ever written a letter to someone who's, who's going through a hard season where you've written an email or you've done this weird thing that people a long time ago used to do, which is get a piece of paper and like write stuff on it and then fold it up, put it up in an envelope and put it in the mailbox and send it. Um, but anybody that's done that to somebody that's hurting, um, you're probably repeating many of the same words over and over again to encourage them, saying, hey, I'm here for you. I love you. If you need me. Let me help you through this season. Peter's been doing that to this group of believers, this group of churches that he refers to as elect exiles in the dispersion. So a group of Jewish Christians that were kind of scattered all around uh, these regions in what would be modern-day Turkey. And one of the unique things Peter's been doing continually, all right, if you notice, if you've kind of locked in to kind of where Peter continues to go in his language, is he keeps grounding their faith in God. It's kind of a consistent theme here in Peter. Well, what else could, uh, would he ground their faith in, Martin, you ask? Well, he, he could try to ground their faith in themselves or in their faith, right? He could say, here's the situation, these trials, these, this suffering, this persecution, it's coming because your faith is weak. It's coming because there's something wrong, but instead what he says is he says God is using trials and suffering and persecution, he's using these things to ground your faith in me. So what he does is he ends up to encourage them, he ends up using words like chosen and called and born again and guarded, your faith is being guarded. He uses the word ransom to describe their identity and their status. And really what it describes, what he's doing is describing what it means to be God's people. And that because of the status that they have, as we've seen, as we've gone through chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, because of this status that they have, he calls them to things, right? So our faith is something that we're called to act out, to live out. And he calls them, he says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. He says, set your hope fully on grace. He says, don't be conformed to the passions of when you were ignorant of God. But he says, be holy in your conduct. He says, put away malice and envy and deceit and hypocrisy and these things that characterized you before you knew Christ. He said, instead, love one another with an earnest and a brotherly love. So Peter is calling the church to grow up. Grow up in the salvation that they've already been given, to mature, to live as a set-apart community of faith in a foreign land. I think Mark Petrus, man, he really, he killed it last week, and he really, really communicated this well to you guys. I'm really thankful for that. But if you haven't gotten it by now, he's talking to us too. So this is a message for us when we start talking about things like spiritual maturity, and what God is looking to do is he grows us up into a people of greater faith. Uh, L.M. Montgomery, uh, a a woman who wrote Anne of Green Gables, she said, I'm so glad I live in a world where there's Octobers, right? (laughs) And I am too, right? I'm sentimental. I'm nostalgic. I love October. And the thing is, this year it's been weird because I feel like the leaves, like they're not, like they're taking their time to change, right? And I'm like, come on. Like, we don't have time because, you know, winter's coming, and, you know, when I get into my Christmas mode, I'm not in pumpkin mode anymore, so we need to, like, kick this thing into gear, and I feel like I'm pleading with the leaves, right? I want them to change, but they, they're going to change when they're going to change, and uh, it's like our maturity, right? We want things to happen quicker than they can happen. Maturity is a slow process, right? Your kids aren't born and then the next day they're, they're, they're coming to you trying to work out, you know, that Algebra 2 qu- you know, quiz that they got the next day. They take a while. They learn how to walk. They learn how to function. They go through stages and phases of life. So maturity is a slow process and it comes, Peter told us last week, part of the way that maturity comes is by us developing a greater longing for the spiritual milk of God's Word. And then he said this. He said the result of that spiritual maturity is that we'll offer ourselves to God as living and acceptable sacrifices, right? So the end game of spiritual maturity is spiritual worship because that is what in actuality you and I have been put on this planet to do is worship God. We fudged that a lot. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I just did. But that is the end game. That is why God created us. So this week, as we've seen Peter continue to do, what he does is he comes back once again, to who the church is as God's redeemed people. Why does he do that? Why does he keep doing that? I mean, you could read this and say, Peter, I get it. Why do you keep going back? Why do you keep telling me who I? It's like you're a broken record. Why do you keep saying these things over and over again? And part of the reason, and I'll just speak for myself right now, and by speaking for myself, I mean just speaking for all of you because I'm that bold. Uh, part of the reason is because I, I, we, we forget who we are. I forget who I am. I bet I, str- I, I struggled this week. I, I mean, I kept waking up, and I just felt such a burden in life. I, I couldn't even put my finger on what, what some of these things were. And, and every morning I'd wake up, and I'm feeling this grief, and I'm feeling this angst inside me. I'm forgetting who I am. And what's interesting for the Christian is that at the end of the day, it's not so important who you are, but whose you are. And there's a difference for the Christian, right? That comes first. Your identity is the outflow of you being identified as God's, as being God's son or daughter. It's that identity that will shape the life you live when you face trials, right? So I'm a man, in case any of you guys doubted that, and it could be well that some of you did. And what that means is that I don't walk into a woman's restroom, Right? I'm glad you guys can trust that about me, but I'm just laying it out there. And it's because I'm a man, except it's substance since we only have one restroom, so that example obviously fails right now as I'm saying it. Um, well, okay, here's another one. One of my other identities is that of a, a married man, okay? So if a, if a woman ever asked me out on a date, that, that wasn't my life, which happens all the time. <laughs> I, um, you know, it's weird. It's literally never happened in 22 years of marriage. Babe, I'm, just, I'm not just saying that because we're right here and you're already giving me those eyes. Um, but, but, but if it did happen, you know, hypothetically, right, um, I, I would tell her I'm married because that identity shapes how I'm going to answer her. It's going to shape my actions. But here's the thing, all right, follow me on this. My status as married father of one is not really what prevents me from going out with this woman. It's that I love my wife. It's that my wife has my heart. And Peter will remind his readers that it is God who has their heart, that his readers are God's people, and that God chooses a people of His own possession who proclaim the excellencies of the mercy and light that they've been given. Okay, and we're going to see that this morning. And Peter, he fleshes out this identity that we have as God's people. And he fleshes out in four ways. He said, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, and you're a people of God's own possession. He says it right here as we pick up in chapter 2, verse 9. And it says this, But you, Peter says are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then he says this. Listen to this verse. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's as far as we're going to go this week. And really what we're going to do is we're going to spend the majority of our time focusing on the first two of those identities, which is chosen race and royal priesthood. And what we're going to do is start by bouncing back to verse 8b, all right? I'm going to get a little technical on you right now. So go back to the end of verse 8 after, and a rock of offense. And let me read that. It says this, talking about those... Uh, who God has not extended His grace to, talking about those who do not have that relationship with Christ. This is what Peter says. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do." I mean, I mean, can we just be honest? I mean, that verse sounds insanely like cryptic and ominous, doesn't it? It sounds like it was crafted by Darth Vader for crying out loud. So what I want to do is I want to talk for a minute about that, about people destined to disobey the word as opposed to those God chooses to obey his word. Now, this is, a, this is a doctrine of the church called election. It's called predestination. And because Peter's been using this language so much, I wanted to dive into what all this chosen and choosing language means. And we're not going to go through the finer points of all of it because that would be like a another eight or nine or ten year series, right? So we're not going to hit the finer points, but I want to try and speak into the objection that comes surfacing to our mind, which is this doesn't sound fair and it doesn't sound right and it doesn't sound just, right? And so at substance, what we're going to do, what I'm always aiming to do, is we want to hold to the view that Paul and Peter taught, right? The most clearest view that we can find in Scripture. And was actually reclaimed five, six, seven, I'm not good at math, 100 years ago by Martin Luther and John Calvin. This is where we want to head when we really look through Scripture and see some of what guys like Peter and Paul are saying when they're saying, no, 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 you've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. So I just want to dive into that for a little bit since Peter brings it up. And I just want to say this, man, it would be easy. Uh, for me to glide over this, okay, real easy, but I really want us to understand this important doctrine of election, again or predestination, whatever word we want to give to it, which is this: that God chooses people to be saved, and it 's the work of grace by God alone through Christ alone that we receive by faith alone. Now you guys have ever seen that little picture that we put in the lobby over the couch? That's, that's what it says right there. That's what we hold to because that's the scriptural precedent uh, for us. So here's the question. How can God choose some? Because Peter's encouraging a people here by saying, you've been chosen, you've been called. How can God choose some and not choose others? Like, what does that even mean? Because the Bible is infinitely clear, we do know this, that he chooses some and he does not choose others. And if you let that sort of sink into you, maybe this is the first time you've ever even heard that kind of language. Maybe others of you have grown up in churches that use that language occasionally. Maybe some of you have heard that kind of language that's turned into like massive brawls and, and fights and anger. Well, we're going to try to go through this peaceably today because our impression can be that when we start seeing things like chosen by God, chosen race, and we see that exclusivity with the people God chooses, it, it can seem harsh, right? It can seem inclusionary and exclusionary. It can seem unfair. It goes against our sense of justice. It goes against our sense of equality. Like we fight with that a little bit. And I'm going to tell you right now, fight with it a little bit. It's okay to fight with some of these things, especially if these are new concepts to you. But listen, we want to understand this in light of what Scripture says. okay? Because it leads us to a clearer understanding of who God is. And how great his mercy is. Everything that Scott was just teaching us through, the, through our songs. How great his mercy is in calling sinners to be his people. Psalm 135 says this. And this is a good way for us to start thinking about this idea that God chooses some and not others. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. All right? So whatever the Lord does, he pleases. And we don't get a lot of play in that, right? We can be angry about that but we don't get a lot of decision-making on what God does and how He does things. Nor do we always know why and how God does things. How can we? Well, we think we can when we try to pull God down to our level But it's futility, right? So when we go back to a verse like 8b, and it talks about people being destined to disobey the word, they stumble because they're destined, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What this speaks about is the sin and corruption that we are born into, that we inherited from Adam and Eve. So your destiny upon conception is that you are already somebody immersed in sin and rebellion against God. That is a destiny for all of us even before we're born. That is what we inherited from Adam and Eve. One of the mistakes, all right, follow me here. One of the mistakes we make when we step into these waters of God choosing us is that we quickly move from God, okay? We quickly move from God to our own beliefs about justice and fairness and choosing and what that means in equality. Most of us, like justice, right? Like, we're all kind of big justice fans, right? I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're eager to see justice served. Man, we see somebody guilty of crimes we believe deserve punishment. Man, we're stoked when they get justice, right? Nobody here is sad when the bad guy in the movie finally gets defeated and destroyed. Like, I've been in those theaters, everybody's like, yeah, you know, it's like that whole thing. Like, we're happy to see him get his just reward. We cheer for that. But when it comes to justice for ourselves, nobody's cheering. Like, we don't so much cheer for ourselves. So, to understand what the Bible means by God choosing, we want to start with the right question, right? Which shouldn't be, why does God only choose some? That's actually the wrong place to start with the question. It's the wrong question to start with. The question that we want to start with is this, and it's infinitely more helpful, and it's infinitely more biblical, and it starts getting our heads wrapped around this idea by starting in the right place, and it's this question. Why does God choose anyone at all? Does that make sense? Even just right now, does that make sense? It's not, why does God only choose some, but why does God choose anyone The question needs to be prefaced with who God is. Well, who is God? Well, the Bible tells us God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. God is a creator over all things. We just saw that. We just read that in Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth because he is over heaven and earth and all things. The other side of that equation is that we are emphatically not we are not just, holy, righteous, or the creator over all things. That's not us. Psalm 51.5 says, behold, this was David saying, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So there it is right there in black and white. Because of that truth, what we deserve as sinners who rebel against a just, holy, and righteous creator, what we deserve is justice. That's what all of us are born deserving, is justice. That's what we deserve. That's the extent of our rights. You think you have rights? Well, your right in front of a holy, just, and righteous God is justice. So, follow me, all right? When we die and face the Lord, everybody is going to receive one of two things. You are going to receive justice, or you're going to receive mercy. Those who die without repenting of their sins going to receive justice, going to receive justice for their sins. What this means, all right, is that God is giving them exactly what they wanted. He's giving them the desires of their heart. Now, remember, apart from the intervening power of the Holy Spirit changing people's hearts to receive God's mercy, nobody does. There's not some moment in your life where you figured out a formula and you started helping more ladies across the street on Tuesdays than you did the prior week and you started earning some sort of righteousness before God. There is none who is righteous. There is none who seeks God. Nobody wants or seeks God until God changes their heart in such a way to draw them to himself. The desire of everybody's heart from conception is to do one thing, the Bible tells us, to follow the passions and desires of our flesh. All right, following me? Okay, so when people die in the passions of their flesh, having rejected the good news of Jesus Christ, what God has done, he has simply given them over to what they want, which was to live a life apart from God and for themselves. All right, I'm talking a lot, and I should be reading scripture, so let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to hit verse 18 through 24. And this is how Paul explains it to us, okay? This is how Paul explains it to us. And remember, when Peter is calling these people called and chosen, this was so important for them to understand this correctly. So this is something that he wants us to know. This is something that he wants us to dive into and get a further and deeper understanding of it because what it does is it helps us in our faith during the trials and the persecutions and the struggles that we're going to have. It helps to know that God has chosen. He has called us for a particular purpose. That's why this helps us to understand this. So let's go to Romans 1, and this is what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and righteous, unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, all right? Read this very plainly with me. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is going to get a little dark right now. We are guilty, okay? Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile. In their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, therefore, look at verse 24. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory in the sense that our hearts are born being pulled in a direction that goes completely against God. And those who God chooses not to show mercy to He's just letting them do exactly where their hearts are pulling them. He's letting them enact their desires. He's giving them what they want. He's giving them the desires of their hearts. But God decides to show mercy to some. Not because anyone deserves it, but because we all deserve because we all deserve justice, right? But then we look in Ephesians 2, and this is what God says. Stay in Romans, but God says this in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. We just sang the song of which that, that passage uh, gave us. So let's, let's recap a little bit here because we're getting to the end of this density, okay? Remember, God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. And that doesn't make him unjust, and it doesn't make him unmerciful. He's not obligated to show mercy to anyone because we reject him from conception. So the fact that God shows mercy to anyone is a testimony to his kindness and his patience and his grace. I like how one pastor phrased it. Christians are the only people who don't get what they want. Right? Because what we really want is not to have anything to do with God until God pulls us out of the darkness. What did we just read there? We are people of his possession. How do you possess something? You take it. He brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, people who reject Christ, what happens? is they receive justice for doing exactly what they want to do. People who God saves receive His mercy because they find their justice through Christ who took the punishment they deserved on the cross. Yeah, you guys should have amen that thing like really loud. Yeah. Okay, so let me run this point into the ground. God did not have to send His Son to die for anyone. But Ephesians 2, again, tells us this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift from God. It was something that God chose to bestow, to give. He chose to send His Son. He chose to allow His Son to suffer and die and be murdered by us, by the hands of people that had sinned against their Creator, so that some people could know and love God and spend eternity with Him. Stephen Lawson says this, salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the guilty. So, God is perfectly fair and perfectly just, but He's also merciful. And He chooses some people who only deserve justice to receive His mercy. So, if this sounds like a bit of a mind-bender to you, that's okay. It's okay. This is the mind of God. This is not our mind. We don't know who God chooses or why. We just know that Scripture is pretty clear that He does choose. But the fact, the fact, all right, the fact that we even argue with this in our minds shows just how utterly obstinate we are. How deserving we think we are, even though clearly our hearts, from conception, do not seek God. Well, let's let Paul speak into that argument that comes rising to the surface of our hearts. Turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to go through 18 through 26. Look how Paul speaks into this. Romans 9, verse 18. That's what Paul says. He says, you will say, I'm sorry, verse 18. It says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, there's a lot we can go into this if we would back up into chapter 9. We don't have time. But here, here we go with verse 19 that will flesh out some of these objections that rise up in our heart about the fairness and the justice of God. He says this, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God chooses people and we can't resist Him, then why does He find fault in people that don't, is what Paul's saying. And this is Paul's answer. But who are you, O man and woman, let's just toss that one in there, to answer back to God? He said, well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? He's kind of taking this whole idea of like, well, I got my rights, and he's just kind of squashing that. 21, he says, has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Verse 22, what if God, here's his argument, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, the people he chooses to save, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even as he has. "...has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." This is kind of what Peter's getting to when he later in, the, in verse 10 when he talks about this people that he has called for his own possession, this holy nation. So this language that Peter's using with these Jewish Christians would have made sense because they remember their time in exile. They remember their time when God pulled them out of Egypt via Moses, and they were a people without a place. But God had called them to be a specific people of his own possession to become a holy nation and a royal priesthood to live out their faith in God, for God's glory, as a witness and a testimony to everybody else. That sounds really similar to to what he's called the church to be and to do, doesn't it? Well, it's similar because that's what what it is, all right? But then we get into this really encouraging portion here when we go into verse 9, right? But let me just say, let me back up one second. This is really hard, isn't it? Like, somebody nod their head. This is really hard. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, my beautiful wife. And yet, we, we want to be careful, all right, to not take Scripture and try to make it fit into what we think is right, right? We conform our minds to what God says, even though we wrestle with it. It's okay to wrestle with things. It's okay to, like, look at this and go, oh, my gosh. Like, this just sound, this is so mind-bendy. I don't even know what to do with this. That's okay. It's all right here. And as we continue to speak this type of language at the church, and as we continue to understand these things as, as they're laid out in Scripture, uh, God, God, will, God will work these areas in our life that we wrestle with, these harder passages of Scripture. He'll conform us to His Word through it. Because ultimately we find comfort in a God who doesn't destroy everyone for their sin. Because He has the right to destroy everyone for their sin. right? Remember Adam and Eve? Remember what He said to Adam and Eve? The day you eat of that fruit that I forbid, you will die Like, that didn't just mean you'll die after 900 years. He meant you will die, and yet they ate of the fruit. And what happened? They didn't die right away. Immediately you saw the extent of God's mercy and grace. But they deserved to die, like we do. But we find comfort in a God that has mercy and grace and gives us time it brings people into our lives that speak that truth. And it starts stirring in our hearts, and it starts changing. It starts changing who we are as people. And then at some point, God pulls us in by His mercy and grace. Because ultimately, we find comfort in a God who doesn't destroy everyone in their sin. We find comfort in a God who chooses to save those He loves. We find comfort in a God who had a son murdered by the people He created so that these same people could spend eternity with Him. This is the comfort that Peter wants his readers to have because it's ultimate, because you can't screw that up. If it's all about God choosing you, then after you're chosen, if you have days where it feels like you're not choosing God, you can't slip out of his grasp because you don't have him. He has you. Praise God. Yes, Well, fine, then. How do I know if I've been chosen, big R? How do I know if I've been chosen? Well, here's the question. Have you repented of your sins and trusted Jesus for your salvation? You've been chosen. Well, doesn't this make us arrogant, though, to talk about people that have been chosen? Well, no, because you always remember that you deserved justice. And that's the comfort here at the beginning of verse 9, because what does he say right here? If we go back to 1 Peter. He says, but you. He makes an exception. He talks about them. He he tells them, but God chose you. There's an exception here because you are the people that God has extended his grace and mercy. You are not those who were destined to disobey the word. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. And you've been called to mission, is what he says. What mission? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You're a community now cleansed by Christ's blood who communicates your awe of God to a world drowning in the darkness that you have been saved out of. Now, if you had the paper this week and there was a parade magazine had a, had a had a story and it was called Awe. And it was basically saying how how looking at the wonder of creation can transform your health and your happiness. They're partially right, right? Except for the fact that trees can't really, like, change our sense of ultimate happiness, joy, and health, can they? But it's this awe of God and the excellencies of His mercy and grace. That's what truly changes the inside of someone. And then Peter says this, moving on. He says, not only are you God's chosen, God's holy nation, God's own possession, but you're also part of a royal priesthood. What? Under God as king. Now, this would have been a strange concept, not only to us, a royal priesthood, but uh, also to Peter's readers. And, and so we, one of the questions that we want to ask when we hear this language of like, what, how, what does that mean, we're a priesthood? You know, isn't that you, brother, without the clerical, you know, like you don't dress like one, but I think that's kind of you, Ronnie. Um, what did priests do? When we go back, what did we see the functions of priests to be? Well, priests went before the Lord on behalf of the people. Priests spoke to the Lord and they heard from the Lord and they atoned by giving sacrifices, by offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. And in ancient Israel, there happened to be a massive separation between the priests and the people, right? The people were not the priests. And the priests were a different, a different community that were literally set apart within the community of the nation of Israel Uh, to do those particular tasks and duties that God had called them to do. So if someone ever tried to perform a priestly duty that wasn't a priest, all right, follow me here, God would get kind of unhappy about that, all right? In fact, he struck down a king named Uzziah with leprosy because this dude, all right, listen, this dude marched in the temple one day like a boss to burn some incense to the Lord, and the priest said, here's the thing, Uzzy, like, you don't get to do that. And God wasn't happy, and God struck him with leprosy. So, follow me here. Being part of a royal priesthood means, unlike Uzziah, because this was Old Testament times, this was, this was something that was unique to the nation of Israel, we now, as God's people, have direct access to God through Christ, who happens to be both our king and our high priest. So, in other words, no more do you have to look to a pastor or priest and think, Man, these these are the guys that have some kind of exclusive password or access code to God that I don't have, right? I mean, surely none of you think that uh, about me. Don't answer that. Um, I had a guy whose wedding I performed a few years ago. And um, it was really funny because at one point, like, he referred to me, like, to my face as as a man of the cloth, right? And I mean, I'm like, I'm looking like this, right? And uh, he referred to me as a man of the cloth, and he wasn't a believer. But he looked at me as having access, a particular kind of access. And you know what? He was right. He was, a, he was absolutely right, but not because I'm a pastor, right, but because I have a high priest named Jesus who offered himself as the final atoning sacrifice so that I could have access to Jesus. He can have that same access if he ever repents of his sins and comes to Christ. But you know what the problem with this whole priesthood thing is, as we start thinking about it, as we start thinking about the fact that we've been called as a royal priesthood who can go before the Lord, right? What it does is it places us in a precarious position, right? Because all of you now have the ability to go before the foot of the cross. All of you have the ability anytime you want to go before the throne of grace. All of you at any time have the ability to go face to face with God. And that is uncomfortable for us. I mean, you don't come to me for access to God. You go to Christ, and that's sobering because the only people who can approach God are those God has chosen. So if that's you, it means that you are part of this royal priesthood who now can approach God. And here's the thing. Let's just be honest. Priesthood language, it's strange lingo. We're Westerners. That is not our culture. It's strange lingo for Westerners. We all have natural indicators in our life that that point to our identity. Priesthood's not one of them, right? Uh, We talk about family of origin, right? We talk about place of birth, vocation, marriage. But you know what's interesting about those things? Those things don't speak to the personal struggle we have as people, do they? Well, I'm a a married father of three. Well, okay. But, But how does that help you? How does that help you when you're experiencing trouble, right? Because what comes to mind when I think of Ronnie Martin I don't know, is that speaking in the third person? I, I, never, I never know what that is. But what comes to mind when I think of Ronnie Martin is this. Not a priesthood. Is a guy born to a, a blue-collar dad and a homemaker mom who was average in school, who never had a lot of friends, who was pretty bad at sports who spent years working really, really hard so that people would just affirm him and tell him that he was good at something. Someone who believed God was out there somewhere, but at the same time was pretty sure God wasn't too thrilled with him. Really, I mean, for me, I thought God was more like my dad who was mad at me because I didn't call and check in with him enough after midnight when I was past my curfew. That's really what I, what I more thought of God as. But you know what? That's bad theology. As somebody who knew Jesus even back then, that was bad theology. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's the way that you think of God. And maybe even thinking through the way that we are, are seeing Peter flesh out royal priesthood sounds foreign to you. But God didn't choose us so that he could start being angry and disappointed with us. Okay? Okay? Let me just say that. God did not choose you so that he could start being angry and disappointed with you. Some of you think of God that way, right? Like he's up there saying, you know how much I paid for all of this? Now you get out there and you perform, right? You know, the whole routine, you know, we get our kids into sports, like we spent like forty or $50,000 on like all this gear and all this training and all this stuff, and then it ends up just kind of sitting there because the kid loses interest, and then you just freak out because you're like, I've invested all this, I don't care if you like it, you're going to get out there and you're going to do it, right? Thank God that he's not like that. But I think a lot of us think of God like that. It's the opposite. He drafted us into his family to have access to him because he delights in us. Do you know that God delights in you? Psalm 16 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. In other words, in you is where I find my solace. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That's true. We just went through all that stuff to talk about that. And then he says this, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. All of the delight that God has is poured into his people, into this royal priesthood of people. It means God has called you out of darkness to be his own. He wants you. He loves you. He purchased you with the blood of his murdered son. He wants you to come to him in awe of his great mercy. He wants you to be... He doesn't want you to be who you were. He wants you to be exclusively His. That's the difference. So why why does any of this matter? Ronnie, priesthood and uh, choosing, God choosing and election and predestination. Why why does being a people and priesthood of God, why why does it matter? I think we talked a lot about why it matters, but let's just kind of break it down a little more intricately here as we close. Number one, it matters because when you go through trials similar to, to the people that Peter's writing to, your tendency is to forget you're part of a family of trial bearers who have priestly access to God. You forget that you can pray. You forget that you can pray for others. You forget that others can pray for you. That's why that priesthood, that royal priesthood, which is also referred to as the priesthood of all believers, it means that we have access to God for us, and we have access to God for others. And that's massively, massively important. And what that means is that there are dark nights of the soul. Hear me. There are dark nights of the soul, but nobody wakes up to a lonely dawn. Because we are all here with access to God for us and for one another. That's the priesthood of all believers, too. Being a people and priesthood of God matters because we're a community that was called out of darkness. Just let, let's think about that. Let that sort of rest on you for a second. Isn't that strange? One of our commonalities, one of the things we share, besides the great salvation, the great mercy and grace that God has given us, is we share a dark past. All of us have come from from darkness. We remember who we were. We remember what God saved us from. We remember that the light God called us to is greater than the darkness He called us from. And that's another way as a community that we encourage one another. Here's the thing. If you're standing in a dark room and the light goes on, what happens? The darkness is immediately gone. It's vanished. And that's the marvelous, that's the awesome light of God that we have been called into. We proclaim the God whose excellencies extinguish the darkness in our life. And we proclaim it to a dark world alongside brothers and sisters who came from the darkness to encourage, to help, to hope. Three. One word. Once. You see where it says that? The bottom of verse 10 there. Once you were not a people... Once you had not received mercy. What a word. What a word, once. Think about that word, once. There are a lot of oncees in our life, aren't there? There's a lot of oncees in our life. Think about some of the oncees in your life. It can be sad. It can be sobering. It can also be good. Once when I was young... Once when I had hair. Once when my loved one was still alive. Once before that relationship was broken. All those once's are significant for us. But what's interesting is that God used them to lead you to your greatest wants. That's what Peter's saying here. Because all have been chosen by God... You know, what, you know what we are? We're ex-inmates who've received pardon. That's who we are. That's who you really, really once were. And you know what? Don't try and pretty, pretty it up on the inside. I, I know some of your once's are prettier on the outside than others. Some of you wore better clothes when you were in the darkness. Some of you had more expensive makeup and bigger houses and nicer cars and better manners when you were in the darkness. All right? You maintained a little bit better in the darkness. But you all needed equally as much light. Don't forget that. And you know what you know what's the problem with that? Is I have a hard time thinking of myself like that. You know what the problem is? I don't think the darkness was that dark in my life. And because of that, I don't think the light is as marvelous as it is. And that's okay. Because Peter's helping me see that through trials and suffering. That's how he helps me see that. Is through trials and suffering. So, as God's light shines more brightly in you, the darkness will seem that much darker to you. And you'll have a growing awe and gratefulness for your chosen and priestly status. And that's because of Christ. Because, listen, in Christ, all of our onces become once and for all. Isn't that beautiful? It's not about who we are. It's about whose we are. We are people who have received mercy and grace. Look at this. I got this note from Naomi Chandler. It was really cool. She wrote me a thank you card, and she she drew a picture of the church, right? And she wrote down this verse from Revelation 22 where it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And that's what we get to experience as God's people is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we're hidden in Christ. Because God is our home. And because Christ is with God, so you will be and so you are. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for allowing us to wrestle through some sobering and life giving truths. The words you've given us sometimes are hard, and we have to fight to grasp some of the things that our flesh fights against and some of the things that push against our own worldly sense of fairness and justice. But Lord, I pray that you would humble us. I pray that we would see you as not just a judge who uh, is just and who serves justice to those deserving of your wrath because of their sin. But we also see you as people who have been chosen, that you decided for reasons we don't know to show your mercy and grace to us. And Lord, let that truth change us. Let that truth humble us. Let that truth give us an awe to proclaim those excellencies, because that's what that truth really does. It's a sobering truth because we know we don't deserve anything from you. And for whatever reason, you chose to extend your mercy and grace to us. And now we can say, God is great. God is good. And it's a privilege for us to be able to gather as a body, as your people, as a people of your own possession, as people who've been called out of darkness and into marvelous light, to be able to be those receivers of mercy and to extend that mercy to not only one another, but to a broken and dark world of whose darkness we are familiar with. So, Lord, let this great truth humble us, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. We all said together, Amen.